Jesus knows that sin destroys people, which is why with such love and compassion and mercy, he came to the earth to die on the cross, to pay for the sins of all who would trust him, so that we'd be set free from sin's guilt, from sin's power, and reconciled to God. That's why Jesus came. Because sin destroys people, separating us from God. But sin doesn't just destroy people. Sin destroys community. It destroys relationships, friendships. And so Jesus not only saves individual people, he also joins saved people together into these brand new communities, which he calls the church, churches. And the love that he gives us in these communities, in in our churches, is so powerful and real and sacrificial and giving and affectionate and tender and strong that when a Buddhist background person walks in here Saturday afternoons, they'll think, What is this love that's here? Or when an Emirati gentleman sees your home group at a picnic, look at that closeness and that unity. Or when an atheist sees you having coffee with somebody at Starbucks, look at that connection. Look at that care. That's Jesus' plan for the church, is that we, Grace Church, would love each other, as he describes in his word, as a display of Jesus Christ's reality. And the reason I mention that is because in today's passage, Luke 17, 1 through 10, Jesus is going to give us some aspects of that love that we need to grow in. There's lots of aspects of that love. We're going to learn a couple of them in this passage, and not only what they are, but also how we can do them. How is it possible to love that way? He's going to tell us. Let's turn to Luke chapter 17, 1 through 10. See what Jesus says here. Verse 1, and he said to his disciples, so he's talking, teaching his disciples here, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck, and he were cast into the sea, killing him, right? That would be better than that he should cause one of these little ones, that's believers, to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you, seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Will any one of you who has a servant, a servant, 
plowing or keeping sheep, say to him, the servant, when he's come in from the field, come at once and recline at table. Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because what he did was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Now this passage breaks down into three parts. And the first part is Jesus answers the question, what are some ways we should love each other? Grace Church, how does Jesus want us to be loving each other? And look at what he says in verses 1 and 2. He answers the question, or he tells us, that we should not lead each other into sin. Look at verses 1 and 2 again. And he said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones, to sin. So here Jesus urges us, don't cause anyone to sin. Grace Church, that's what he's calling us to do. We want to be a community here where we do not cause each other to sin. Now, what are some ways we could do that? Well, we could encourage someone to do something that was against their conscience. Lots of different cultures here, different you know, custom issues about food or drink, and we could encourage somebody to break their, to go against their conscience. We could do this by gossiping. This is very common, very easy to do. Gossip is where you speak badly about someone behind their back. That's what gossip is. And gossip leads others into sin because you're all ending up thinking the same thing about that person that you're talking about. So it's leading people into sin. We can do this by inviting others to maybe a a questionable movie or to a party where you know that sinful things are going to be going on. Another really common way is is by grumbling. Anybody grumble this week? Grumbling, very common, so easy to slip into where we're complaining about our circumstances. But when we grumble, we are not trusting God's promises. Check your heart the next time you're grumbling. You're not. I'm not when I grumble. And when we're grumbling to other people, we're encouraging them not to trust God's promises as well, which is sin. Just some examples here of how we can cause others to sin. And he urges us, Jesus urges us, do not cause each other to sin. And he wants us to take this warning very seriously. Notice the words that he uses here, like this word, woe. We don't use that word very often, but woe means great sorrow and distress will come to the one who causes his brother or his sister to sin. And then this whole millstone thing, look at verse 2 again. This is not an easy verse to understand, but look at what he says. It would be better, better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea, killed, then that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. So Jesus is describing two alternatives to us. 
Here you've got the alternative of causing someone to sin, and over here the alternative of drowning in the ocean. Which is better? Drowning in the ocean is better than causing someone else to sin. Well, why? How's that better? It's because the consequences of making someone sin are worse than the consequences of dying. Let me say that again. The consequences of making someone sin can be worse than the consequences of physical death. Well, what's worse than physical death? Eternal death? Hell is worse? Now, of course, if, if any of us causes a brother or sister to sin, and we, we turn to Christ, and we confess, look at what I've done, I'm sorry, forgive me, we can be fully assured that because of Jesus shed blood on the cross, which we've worshipped and sung about this afternoon, you will be completely pardoned, assured that you're forgiven, and on the way to heaven, no question about it. But Jesus wants us to feel the weightiness of this sin. Do you see what this could mean for someone? So feel how serious this is. Just let, let the Lord touch your heart. We must not lead each other into sin. Second aspect of this love that he calls us to have is that we should rebuke others when they do sin. Verse 3, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. Pause there. We'll just take that section. Now, that word rebuke, to a lot of people, that word sounds pretty harsh. Like rebuking somebody, well, that's like when you scold them. You condemn them. And the word rebuke can mean that. But it also has a broader range of meaning. It can also mean something like warn someone. Caution someone, not something harsh. And we know that's what Jesus is talking about here because Paul, the apostle of Christ, look at what, how he describes this rebuking in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Notice the tenderness that's here. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, doesn't mean that somebody caught them, it means that sin's like a trap. Boom, caught in it. Okay, you, you just sinned. Okay, if, you're, if you sin, in other words, if you're caught in a transgression, if you sin, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. So our rebuke should be marked with gentleness, tenderness, compassion, maybe tears, love, affection. That's what is going on here. So let's say, for example, maybe let's go back to gossiping. Let's say you hear somebody gossiping, or you, you think you heard them gossiping. It's like, oh my goodness. Um, it sounds like they're gossiping. How would you rebuke them in a way that's gentle and strong? How would you do that? Let me give you six suggestions. Okay, I think this is, these are all helpful and, and important. First of all, you by yourself, you, you bring this to Jesus. And you humble yourself before him. You are no better than this person. And you ask Jesus to remove any kind of anger against this person from you and to fill you with his love afresh. So you meet the Lord in this first and foremost. So your heart's right. Get your heart right. Secondly, ask God to help you talk to him. 
Father, help me. I, I don't know what to say. I'm going to stutter and mumble, and please help me. I'm so nervous about this. Help me know what to say. And then third, share questions with them, not accusations. It's not, you were gossiping yesterday. That's an accusation. Don't do that. I, I hope I misunderstood, but, and I, I love you, so can I ask, was that gossip yesterday? Ask questions. You might be wrong. You might have misunderstood. Number four, if they have sinned, show this to them from Scripture. That's where the, the power is. Ooh, Scripture. That's God will speak through Scripture. And then point them to Jesus' forgiveness and help. Point them to the cross. Let's go to the cross together. We're all here at the foot of the cross together, right, church? Let's meet the Lord afresh in this and then pray with him. Number six. Now, let me share with you one time I experienced this. Somebody rebuking me. It's the first time I can remember. This is years ago. Uh, I was um, a pastor at a church in, in the U.S. And a man said he needed to talk to me and invited me to come over to his house that week. And so I, I went to his house and we sat down and he was full of love and humility. It was just, just a dear, I love this guy. And he opened up his Bible and he read to me scriptures about loving people, about putting other people first, about not counting yourself more important than others. I'm thinking, uh-oh, <laughs> Where, where's this going? And then he asked me some questions. He asked if I had a pattern of showing, <clears throat> excuse me, showing up late to appointments. <clears throat> I might need some water. Do you have some water, hon? <clears throat> If I had a pattern of showing up late to appointments, I'll be right with you. I'll just hang on to it. Okay. Okay. I did have a pattern of showing up late for appointments. So I admitted it. I mean, what's wrong? Everybody's late, right? Happens to all of us. And then he asked me if I'd ever thought about why I was so often late to appointments. Hmm. I hadn't thought about why. It wasn't that important to me. And then I believe he asked me if maybe the reason I was so often late was because I thought my time was more important than anybody else's time. Wow. He was right. He nailed it. So kind, so gentle. He was asking me questions. And he encouraged me that Jesus would help me and forgive me. And we had a sweet time praying together. This is years ago. I will never forget it. Love that brother. He was doing exactly what Jesus calls each of us to do. He was rebuking me with gentleness and strength. That's what he did. Now, what if this man had said, and who am I to bring this up with, with Steve? I mean, me to point out the sin in a pastor? I mean, who, who am I to do that? All that kind of stuff. If he would have said something like that and not rebuked me, it's possible that I would never have seen that area of sin in my life. It's possible. And who knows what, what that ugly root of sin in my heart 
that what that ugly root of sin would have grown up into, what kind of weeds or thorny stuff. I mean, who, who knows what that could have done, but instead he helped me pull that root out that afternoon. Jesus calls us to rebuke one another when we sin. Gently, humbly, lovingly. That's what he calls us to do. So, so ask yourself, is there someone that you need to gently, humbly, lovingly rebuke? You're not saying you're better than they are. You're not saying you're more spiritual than they are. You're just obeying Jesus. And brothers and sisters, what a powerful love and community is in God's people when we are doing that with each other with tears in our eyes and love in our hearts and the glory of Jesus is our motivation. What powerful love, what growth, what honesty, what openness, what melting of hearts together. It is a beautiful thing. Let's obey Jesus on this one also. That's what he calls us to do. So first, don't lead each other into sin. Second, so far, rebuke others when they do sin. But then third, we should forgive those who repent. Keep reading in verse 3. Read that again. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. Now, one puzzling thing about this verse is why does Jesus say, if he repents? Aren't we always supposed to forgive everybody for everything? And the answer is yes, we are. Jesus himself said that. Look at Mark chapter 11, verse 25. And whenever you stand praying, Jesus says, forgive if you have anything against anyone. Now, anything, that covers it all, right? And anyone covers everyone, right? So he wants us always to be forgiving everyone for anything that they've done. Always. But then why does Jesus say here that we should forgive if he repents? Here's the reason why I think. You weigh this and see if this makes sense to you biblically. I think it's because there's a part of forgiveness. There's a part of forgiveness that's only possible if someone repents. There's part of forgiveness that's only possible if someone repents. Think about what's involved. What are the different parts of forgiveness? I want to just, I'm going to suggest three parts of forgiveness. The first two, we should always do with everyone, whether they repent or not. We'll talk about the third one in a moment. What's the first? The first is we put to death any anger toward them. Okay? We don't hold what they did against them. We don't bear any grudges against them. We put any anger to death. That's the first step. Second, we love them, and we want the best for them. Love them, want the best for them. We, we care about them. Now, just a little side note here. That could still mean, for example, that you press charges against them. If there's some abuse going on or something, still report it to the authorities. You can do that with tears, right? You want to serve justice, have justice be done. But you can weep for them and care about them. So number one is we put to death any anger toward them, and number two is we love them and want the best for them. And those are two aspects of 
forgiveness that we should always take with everyone whenever we need to forgive someone, no matter whether they repent or not. Always those two. Put to death any anger you have toward them and love them. Want the best for them. If we've done that, we have forgiven them. But there's a third part of forgiveness, which is not always possible, especially if they have not repented. Third part. If possible, reestablish a close, trusting relationship with them. Now, that's only possible if somebody repents. Now, let's be clear. Whether they repent or not, we should always put anger to death. And we should always love and wish the best for them. That's always what Jesus calls us to do. And if they do repent, then it's possible that we could pursue a reestablishment of this close, trusting relationship with them. But if they don't repent, that's going to limit the amount of the depth of relationship we could have with them. Let me give you an illustration. There was a man at our church back in the U.S. who'd left his wife for, for no biblical reason. And, and we took appropriate steps, but, but he, he would not repent. He did not repent. And he then ended up leaving the church and married someone else. It's heartbreaking. Months went by, and then one day I saw him in a parking lot. I honestly don't think I was angry at him. And I, I do believe I, I loved him and wanted the best for him. But because he hadn't repented, everything wasn't just fine between us. I mean, there, there, I couldn't just like, hey, how's it doing? Everything's fine. No, because he's not repented. He's still at odds with God. I'm concerned for, because if he's, he hasn't repented, how can he be assured he's, he's going to be, he's saved and is going to be in heaven? How can I just talk about, well, what's happening with, you know, baseball or football or whatever it might be? And so I, I just, I said, um, brother, have you repented yet? And he said, no, I'm not. And I just said, I love you. I'm at the foot of the cross. I, I, I long for you to be there too, but how can you be assured that you're forgiven if you're not trusting Jesus for this because we're saved by faith? Jesus' arms are wide open to you. I, I don't remember everything I said, but it was heartbreaking. He would not repent, walked away. It's still heartbreaking. But do you see how that lack of repentance doesn't change my love for him and my desire for his best, but it it, it changes our relationship in, in a way that's just very sad. But I hope that helps us understand forgiveness. Always put anger to death. Always love and want their best. That's what Jesus is calling us to. And then where there's repentance, we can take the full, the full steps. There's a fourth way Jesus wants us to love each other. We should forgive as often as we are sinned against. This is shocking, what Jesus says here. Start in verse 3 again. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times, saying, I repent, you must forgive him. You must forgive him, Jesus says. 
Now, he wants us to feel shocked by this. Notice that this is somebody who sins against you. This is not an accident. They didn't make a mistake. They wanted to gossip about you. They wanted to take that from you. They sinned against you. Seven times in one day. And yet each time they're, they're broken and they repent. And Jesus says, each time, forgive them. 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 Do you remember when, when Peter asked Jesus, Jesus, how many times should I forgive someone? Like, like seven times? And Jesus answered, um, 70 times seven. <laughs> Can you imagine the disciples? But do you see Jesus' point? We are always forgiving, church. Always forgiving. Everyone for everything. We should always have forgiven everyone that we know. There should never be someone we haven't forgiven. Now, yes, forgiveness is a process. We, it's not like you just turn that on and off. It's a process, but starting the process, coming before the Lord, help me not be angry, change my heart. This is what Jesus is calling us to do. And so, so Grace Church, feel what this means. He's calling us to be a people here where we forgive each other again and again and again and again. And again and again, and again and again and again, so that we are a an unforgiveness free zone here, where we are. We everybody here has forgiven everybody. That's what Jesus is calling his people to be to do. So ask the question: Who do you need to forgive? Who do you need to forgive? Now, what happens next in this passage is puzzling. Here's the question. Why do the apostles at this point ask for increased faith? Why do they ask for increased faith? Look at verse 5. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. Sounds like a random question kind of from out of nowhere, but it's not. I think the, the apostles are feeling the impossibility of doing what Jesus has just said. If you're thinking, well, I can do that. No, you can't. It's not easy. It is impossible um, for ourselves with our own resources. And the apostles are feeling the impossibility of that. They know they don't have that in them. I mean, Peter was thought it would be impressive to think about seven times, period. They know they need help. And so they ask Jesus, increase our faith. (laughs) We don't have that, Jesus. Increase our faith. And look at how he answers them. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Jesus' answer is that all you need is a mustard seed of faith. And the mustard seed is this little tiny seed. You can hardly even see it. There it is right there. Oh, it's so small. That's how much faith you need, men. If you had a mustard seed of faith, tiny. Every believer has a mustard seed of faith. 
right? We've all got a mustard seed of faith. It can get larger, but, oh, but it never gets smaller than a mustard seed. We've all, we've all got a mustard seed of faith. And when you exercise even just a mustard seed of faith, God will do things that feel to you impossible, like uprooting a mulberry tree and planting it in the sea, or like changing your heart so you love and forgive this person you've been bitter and angry towards. A mustard seed of faith, when exercised, will see God doing impossible things like that. So how does this actually work? How do you exercise a mustard seed of faith? And how does that change your heart? Well, think about what faith means. Faith means trusting all that God promises to be to you in Jesus Christ. Bible's full of promises. Faith means trusting all that God promises to be to us in Christ. So there you are. That person has just sinned against you, harmed you intentionally, willfully, and all you're feeling is anger and bitterness, right? We've all been there. We know that. But you got a mustard seed of faith. You got a mustard seed, you, you got a mustard seed to exercise. And so you've gotten the faith to look to God and to, and to trust his promises. Like, for example, the promise of Luke 18, 27 where Jesus says what is impossible with people is possible with God. And Jesus is talking about God's power to change hearts, change this hearts of a heart of a rich man in Luke 18. So he's willing to give away his money. That's impossible for humans to do, but God's power can do it. What's impossible with people is possible with God. So you have, you have a mustard seed of faith to trust God can change this angry, bitter heart. I trust you. I can't do it, but I'm trusting you. Mustard seed, there we are. And a promise like John 8, 31, the word of God will set us free from slavery to sins like bitterness and anger. God's word is powerful. Okay, I trust you. I'm full of, I mean, I'm, I'm enslaved to anger and bitterness now, but you're, you said that your word could set me free from it. Here I am, I'm trusting you. Do it, I can't do it, but you promise that you can do it. Then the promise of John 7, 37 to 38, I love this. When we put our trust in Jesus Christ, again and again, he will pour rivers of living water into our hearts so that all of our heart thirsts are quenched and we overflow with rivers of living water, living water of love and forgiveness to those who've hurt us. He can pour such rivers of living water into your heart as you trust him that you will flow out with forgiveness to everybody who's hurt you. So you exercise a mustard seed of faith by opening up the scriptures, reading these promises, seeing afresh who Jesus is. I trust you. I trust you. Help me. I trust you. And as you do that, he will change your heart. Most all of you have experienced this. Probably dozens of times. It's, it's just miraculous what God can do. I mean, it's just, it's astonishing. You open up your Bible, you're grumbling and you're angry and you're bitter and, oh Lord, help me. I, just, I want to forgive, but it's just not there. And, and you pray and you read and you trust just with the mustard seed of I'm trusting you. Do the, you say you can do this, I'm trusting you. And he will change your heart. The anger and the bitterness will be washed away. Love and care will rise and grow You'll forgive. You'll forgive. See, the disciples thought that they needed like 
huge, powerful, awesome faith to do this. You don't need huge, powerful, awesome faith. All you need is a mustard seed of faith in a huge, powerful, awesome God, which is who our God is. Don't you love that? What do we bring to the table? Just tiny little faith. And God just moves in with power. Changes your heart. <laughs> glory. I mean, don't you love it? We get all the benefit and he gets all the glory, right? That's how it works. And he will do that for us again and again and again. But now at this point, Jesus knows there's a danger. He's been teaching this. The disciples have asked. He's given his answer. When we start to see God changing our hearts and enabling us to forgive and freeing us from anger and bitterness so we can forgive seven times even in one day, what can happen to us? We can start to feel proud, right? Self-righteous. I've really got this Christian life thing kind of down, don't I? It's, like, it's kind of hot stuff here. You know, this is amazing. Boy, I'm going to take this on the road, tell people how to do this stuff. It's going to be amazing. It's a danger, and that danger can kill our love and our forgiveness. And Jesus deals with that danger in verses 7 through 10. So let's ask the question, how should we respond when we obey? When we do obey, how should we respond? Verses 7 through 10. Let's read it again. Will any one of you who has a servant, it's a servant, okay? You're the master. This is a servant. Plowing or keeping sheep, say to him when he has come in from the field, come in at once and recline at table. No, will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me, dress properly, and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink. Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? Verse 10, so you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. It's a powerful, powerful picture here. Of course, it's good to thank servants. That's not Jesus' point. But his, his point is we should when we've done what Jesus has called us to do, our hearts should be, I'm an unworthy servant. I've just done what I was supposed to do. See, understand, we are servants. Jesus is our master, right? Don't switch the roles, okay? Who are the servants? We are. Who's the master? He is. He's, he's our master. He's your master, and, and you are the servant. And, and we should say, we are unworthy servants. Jesus has said, forgive this person seven times. Keep forgiving. Forgive everyone for everything. And okay, by your grace, help us. And, and when we obey, we should say we are unworthy servants. Not we're proud, not we're self-righteous, not we're better than somebody else. We are unworthy servants. Why? Well, one reason is because we haven't done anything all that special. We've just obeyed our master. I mean, how many times are servants supposed to obey their masters? Every time, right? Every time, every time. Well, but I'm a servant. I obey my master every time. Good. That's what servants are supposed to do, right? And by the way, let me just throw in a little side note here. 
There is, there is nothing better. There is no pleasure greater than having Jesus Christ as your master. Is there? I mean, please don't get the wrong idea here. Oh, what a master. What a master. And yet he is the master. And we always have every reason to obey him perfectly. Now, we, we sin, we stumble, we struggle, right? We all do. But when we obey him, we are unworthy servants. We've just done what we're supposed to do. That's one reason. Second reason is we don't even deserve to be his servants. We've all sinned so much that we've been disqualified from being his servants. We should be in, in prison or, in, or, or killed or in hell, right? Not his servants. And what did our master do for us rebellious, treasonous servants? Our master was nailed to the cross for us. Our master was scourged for us. Our master was punished for our sins so that we could be his servants and not punished forever. We have the joy of being the servants of the most glorious master imaginable, Jesus. So, Grace Church, when we obey Jesus, here's the four ways he's called us to obey, not leading others into sin, rebuking others when they sin, forgiving those who repent, and forgiving as often as we've been sinned against. When we obey Jesus, there should be no pride, no sense of superiority, no self-righteousness, no boasting, just humble, happy, Jesus-loving servanthood, all at the foot of the cross together. Happy, humble, Jesus-loving servanthood. And that, with these ways Jesus calls us to love each other, will show Abu Dhabi that Jesus Christ is real. Let's stand. What a glorious master you are, Jesus Christ. We love you for saving us so we could be your servants. We love being your servants. And Lord, I pray that you would, by your power, help us this week, even tonight, to exercise our mustard seeds of faith, to trust your promises, and as we do that, that you would change our hearts in whatever area of obedience we need to be changed in. But, oh Lord, we want to be a church which so shines with your love that Abu Dhabi is struck with the reality of you, Jesus, our Master and our Savior. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>